If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're in Luke chapter 1 as we continue in our sermon series on the Christmas story. Last week we were in Matthew chapter 1 as we looked at where the angel appeared to Joseph. Uh, This week we're in Luke chapter 1 as we look at the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary. Next week we'll be in Luke 2 with the angels and the shepherds at the manger. And then on January 1st we will look at the wise men visiting the uh, Christ child out of Matthew chapter 2. So that's sort of where we're going. But today we're in Luke chapter 1. And we are looking at the angel Gabriel visiting Mary. And our call to worship this morning, in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1, we saw where Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And we use that as a call to worship today. And we recognize that for some of us, we are there. We want to magnify the Lord. We want our spirit to rejoice in him. But for many of us, for whatever reason, if we're honest, that's just not where we are. Maybe you were there at one point in time and you'd like to get there again. Maybe you've never been there at all and you'd like to be there for the first time in your life. The question is, how do we get to verse 46? How do we get to that point that we want to magnify the Lord, that we are rejoicing in him and what he has done for us? And as we come to Luke chapter 1 today and we see the the angel appear to Mary, I think we'll see how it is that we get to verse 46. How do we get to that point? And it's interesting to me, we're going to see in the text today, it's about a week from the time the angel, you know, an angel appears to me and she doesn't just start rejoicing. There's something that happens in between that. And about a week later, she begins to rejoice. What is it? What is it that leads our hearts to rejoicing? That's what we'll look at this morning as we come to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 26 Through 38, and I'll pray for us and we'll dig in. Hear now God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here around your book, around your word now. And so I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to see the significance 
of this announcement that Gabriel made to Mary. I pray that you would also help us to see how we go from hearing that announcement to great rejoicing in you. Please show us now how to do that through your word and through the preaching of your word and even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we come to this passage today, there are a lot of things you may be wondering about. This word betrothed is one we don't use a lot. The word behold, the name for Jesus, the virgin birth, all those are things we talked about in the sermon last Sunday in Matthew chapter 1. And so if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, I checked this morning, it is on iTunes, it is on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, check and see if we are there. If not, let me know when we will be there. You can go back and hear about those things from the sermon last week. This week, I just want us to focus on two things. First, the significance of the announcement made by Gabriel. I want us to see the significance of that announcement. And second, I want to talk about how we should respond to that. Like sort of the so what, right? How should we respond to this announcement that we read about that we hear Gabriel make today? So let's look at those two things. First, the significance of Gabriel's announcement. Here's how significant it is. Gabriel is announcing the turning point in all of human history. Gabriel is announcing the turning point in all of human history. And I believe I can show you that without even using the Bible. In fact, I'm going to leave it here and step away from it, and, 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 and let's talk about it away from the Bible. And some of you may be saying, well, I was kind of hoping he would use the Bible today. And I will. I'll get there, and we will use it. But for some folks, they're a little skeptical of the Word. And so if we can show them that this is the turning point in all of history before we even get into the Word, then perhaps that will make them a little more open. So I see somebody sitting down here. I know I'm supposed to stay up there. I'm violating all the rules if I could ask you, sir, what is the date today? I see you've got your, your order of worship and your phone. What is today's date? December the 18th of what year? 2022. And that's 2022 years from what? From the birth of Christ. That's right. Now, the birth of Christ is not the first thing that ever happened in recorded human history, right? There's stuff that happened before that. How do you measure time for things that, were, that happened before the birth of Christ? I think of Julius Caesar. He died about 44 years before the birth of Christ. So how do we measure that? B.C., before Christ, right? 44 B.C. is when Julius Caesar died. That's right. So you see... In all the Western world, we measure everything that happens, all of recorded history, we measure it in terms of when it occurred in reference to the birth of Christ. It's been 2,022 years, and so we measure from that point in time, even things that happened before it. Now, why is that important? That shows that at least a lot of people think this is the turning point in all of human history because we measure everything from that point. And so if you're here today and you're skeptical, I'm so glad that you're here today. But let me just challenge you, anyone who is open to the truth would at least have to explore that fact that we measure human history from this point in time. 
And any historian or academic worth their salt would certainly look at primary sources that would explain what happened at the time, not interpretations from much later. And that's what we find here in Luke's gospel. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, Luke says, I have interviewed eyewitnesses, people who were there from the beginning. He probably interviewed Mary. He certainly interviewed people who knew Mary and had talked with her. And he put down this orderly account of what happened. So I hope that you, with an open mind, you will look here at what Luke is saying. And what Luke says is happening is that the angel Gabriel is announcing the beginning of the fulfillment of God's ancient promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15. Maybe you'll recall all the way back at the beginning, the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we read there where God created all things out of nothing by the power of his word in the space of six days and all very good. Everything was good. There was nothing bad in the world when God created it. Well, the world we live in is broken and messed up. How did that happen? We'll read Genesis chapter 3. And you see there that the man and the woman, the first man and the first woman that God put in the Garden of Eden, they sinned against God. And because they did not live life the way God designed it to be lived, then sin entered the world and all the effects of sin, shame, fear, blame, uh, pain, decay, Death, all these things entered into the world as a result of our sin. And at that point in time, in Genesis 3 and verse 15, God spoke to the one who had tempted the man and the woman, the serpent. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 identifies that ancient serpent as the devil or Satan. And in Genesis 3.15, we'll read where God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity... That word means hatred. I will put hatred or enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed or your offspring and her seed or her offspring. And then God says, he, the offspring of the woman, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's Genesis 3 in verse 15. God had promised that a human, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, a human would come, and that he would do battle with evil. And at great cost to himself, right, the, that ancient serpent, the devil, would strike his heel, would harm him. And at great cost to himself, he would crush evil's head. He would inflict a decisive defeat over evil. He would inflict a mortal wound, which means where Adam and Eve failed, this one is going to succeed. Where you and I have failed to live life as God designed it to be lived, this one succeeds and lives life as God designed it to live. Genesis 3.15, there says that there will be enmity or hatred between the woman and her offspring and that ancient serpent, the devil, and his offspring. And whether you know it or not, that battle between the two is now going on. Revelation 12 makes that very clear. I would encourage you to read Revelation 12. It's a great picture of Christmas, one we're not used to hearing, but it makes clear that that battle is going on and explains a great deal of what is going on in the world today. 
And from Genesis 3.15 on, the rest of biblical history, and indeed the rest of human history, it's the same thing as the unfolding of that one verse in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And at Christmas, we celebrate that the conqueror has come through the seed of the woman. And we've been singing his praises and declaring in the confessions that we have said and the songs that we have sung, we've confessed that this conqueror will not rest until there is not one inch of ground that Satan controls in this universe, that Satan will be crushed, that the Satan knows this battle is going on and he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And Satan is trying to stop the seed of the woman from having that victory. And that explains so much of what we read in the news. So much of what we experience in the world today. And so here we find in Luke 1, Gabriel is announcing the beginning of the fulfillment of God's ancient promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15. By the way, he's also announcing the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, there in verses 12 through about 16, God is speaking to King David, a man after his own heart. And God tells David that God will raise up his seed, an offspring of David, the seed of the woman, that he would raise up his seed In verse 14, God says, I will be his father. He will be my son. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7 says, his kingdom will have no end, that God will establish his kingdom forever. And that's exactly what Gabriel is saying, right? Do you see that in verse 32 and 33? He's just said to Mary, you're going to call his name Jesus when you have this son. Verse 32, he will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High. That's what, that's what God had said in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Gabriel is announcing the beginning of God's fulfillment of that ancient promise, first in Genesis 3.15, then in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So for us, as we sit here today, the good news of Christmas is this, that God has sent a redeemer. He has sent a rescuer to make all things right, to right all wrongs, to bring peace on earth, shalom, life the way God intended it to be lived from the very beginning. So one day there will be no more sin and death, no more crying or pain, no more shame and fear and blame and hate and oppression, that he will make all things new. As we sang in Joy to the World, he comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. So all the effects of sin and death will be defeated and done away with. And God began that process at the first Christmas. Now that is a message of great significance. And clearly that's what Luke is communicating as he records what Gabriel has said. All right, that's the significance of Gabriel's announcement. So what? How do we respond to that? Mary's response is so interesting. It's not exactly what you would think. Many times we think we're just going to hear that message and then we're going to rejoice. And sometimes that is the way people respond. 
It's not Mary's response. It's going to be a week before she starts saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in him. How, how does she get there? How does she get from this startling announcement and hearing what Gabriel has said to the point of rejoicing? Now let's look at that because many of us want to get there. We want to know how that can happen. So let's look at Mary and how she responds, and I think she's a good paradigm for how that can happen for us. If you're a note taker um, on the back of your order of worship, uh, I've got those five numbers listed there, kind of five steps that I see Mary do. Let's look at those together. Number one, think. Number one is think. Look at verses 28 and 29. The angel comes and says, greetings, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The text says she was greatly troubled. I think the New American Standard has a better translation. It says she was perplexed. She's thinking. She's wondering. But even perplexed isn't strong enough. It's a compound verb that conveys more intensity of the action of the verb. So I would like where it says she's greatly troubled. I'd say she's greatly perplexed. She is wondering. She is thinking what's going on. And then where it says uh, she tried to discern what sort of saying it is. Tried to discern. That, that verb is, uh, the NIV says she wondered. The, NI, the NASB says she was pondering. The verb means to reason or to reckon thoroughly. Mary was pondering these things. Later Luke says she treasured them away in her heart. But here she's giving some ongoing reflection to this greeting. Her wheels are turning. She's mulling it over. She's thinking to herself, what kind of greeting might this be? She had heard the angel say that God was with her and that she had found favor with God, that she's an object of his grace. So she's probably thinking, what will this mean for me? What are the implications for me of what this angel is saying? Let me stop right there. As you hear the announcement of the angel Gabriel, are you perplexed? Do you have an intense curiosity? Are you mulling over these things and thinking about these things, wondering about them, pondering them? Do you ponder these things and try to discern what all this may mean for you? That's the first thing Mary does. And I would submit that if what Gabriel is saying is indeed the turning point in all of human history, if that's true that it is, then these things are worthy of our thoughts and our pondering about them. And I challenge you and encourage you to do so, especially during this holiday season. So how do we get to rejoicing from hearing the announcement? Number one, we think. Number two, ask questions. Ask questions. You see in verse 29, she's wondering what sort of greeting this may be. She has questions in her own mind. But then Mary articulates questions to an angel. Now that's pretty interesting that she would question what an angel says. She must have really been questioning things. But if you look at verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And that's a good question. And you can hear about the virgin birth in the sermon last week. But I just want to point out here that Mary is thinking, she's pondering, and now she's asking questions. 
so interesting to me. I talk to many skeptics, and oftentimes as I get to know them and they begin to be honest about where they are, they will say, you know, religious people just don't ask questions. They just turn off their minds and believe. That believers just stop thinking. They stop asking questions and just believe. And the skeptical say, I can't do that. I wish I could do that, but I just can't do that. Then many times they'll give examples of people in their life who do that. You know, they'll say, my mom does that. My aunt, my grandmother does that. But I can't just turn off my mind and stop asking questions and just believe and just have faith. Notice here in the text, Mary does not turn off her mind and just believe. She ponders these things, she thinks about them, and she asks questions. Now, church, let me talk to you for a minute. Because many times... We can create an environment where people feel like they cannot ask questions. And I understand why we do, because if somebody asks too many questions, we begin rolling, oh gosh, that person's asking questions again. And sometimes we get nervous because we're not sure we know the answer, and we begin to say, okay, don't ask too many questions. That sounds like doubt. We've got to have faith. So we need to be careful as a church and as a community that we do not deter people from asking honest questions. And if we don't know the answer, finding answers and going to somebody and together as a community answering these questions. But sometimes as a church, we act like asking questions is always a bad thing, and it's not. If you have questions, I want you to hear very clearly that the leadership here at Redeemer Church wants this to be a place that you can get honest answers to honest questions. We want this to be a place like that for you. And as far as skeptics or our own children, we want to encourage you to ask questions. That's the biblical example. Jesus asked questions. We did a whole sermon series called Questions Jesus Asked. Feel free to ask questions. And I want you to know, this is a place that we are not afraid of your questions. Kids, I want you to hear that clearly. Because sometimes I think we're afraid to ask questions or we shut down questions because we're afraid of whether we'll have answers. We're not afraid of that. Greater minds than ours have struggled with Christianity for two millennia. And it has not been discredited. They have not overcome the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to me, folks. I don't believe you're going to hear something in a 60-second TikTok video that's going to discredit Christianity. So bring your questions. Let's talk about these things together. When you have something in your mind that brings doubts, let's talk about it. Because the Scripture encourages us, number one, to think, and number two, to ask questions. All right, skeptics, I pushed back on the church a little bit. Uh, let, me, let me push back on you a little bit. Asking questions is not always bad, but asking questions is not always a good thing. If you look at verse 18 in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, when Gabriel appears to him, asks a question, and Gabriel says, you're not going to be able to speak until your child is born. Gabriel reacted totally different to that question, and there are a lot of reasons we can talk about why the angel reacts differently. But let me just offer this as an explanation. There is a spirit of cynicism that calls us to doubt 
everything and to always question, not as a way of getting to the truth, but as a way of never arriving at any absolute truth. You see, asking questions can be a sign of an open mind, but it can also be a sign of a closed mind. Asking questions can sometimes be the sign of a person who wants answers, but asking questions can also be the sign of a person who does not want answers. Asking questions can mean that you are open to the truth, but it can also mean that you're using your questions as a stiff arm to keep the truth at arm's length. Because there's a way to ask questions because you're seeking truth and really want answers. And there's a way to ask questions to avoid the truth when you really don't want the answers. And you don't want to hear that things are different than the way you would hope that they would be. And you don't want to say that. And so you just ask questions. As we talk to people and as we answer questions, church, we need to ask them. Are you asking questions? as a way to get to the truth, or are you asking questions as a way to avoid the truth? Now, I don't suggest that you answer their second question with that, right? I would answer lots of questions, but over time, I think that's a fair question to ask as we engage with with people. Mary was asking questions, but she was willing to change her point of view if the truth was other than what she wanted it or thought that it may be. And so we want to ask questions in that way. How about you? Are you asking questions? I hope that you are. The biblical example would be that you would be wrestling with lots of questions no matter where you are in your walk with God. Second, what kind of questions are you asking Is it the kind seeking the truth, even if the truth is not what you want it to be, or a way to avoid the truth? Another question, do you know somebody who's asking you questions? That you're a safe place for people to come and to ask questions. Whose questions are you answering? May God make this a place where people can think and can ask questions. That's what we need to do. Number one, think. Number two, ask questions. Number three, we cautiously submit. We cautiously submit. I'm going to show you the caution in just a second. Let me show you the submission first. You see it right there in verse 38, right? Mary gets to the place. She listens to what the angel says. And in verse, she hears nothing's impossible for God in verse 37. And then in verse 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, at some point, even in our questioning, we must come to the point that we come to God and we say, I submit to you. I don't have all the answers to all my questions, but you do. I don't know everything, but you do. And so I submit myself to you. Now, for some people, that sounds unreasonable. Because we want to say, I'm not coming to the Lord until he answers all my questions. But I would submit to you, that's a way of holding the truth at arm's length. Think about that with me. If God really is who the Bible says that he is, that he created all things out of nothing by the power of his word in the space of six days and all very good, that he is all powerful, that he is all knowing, that he is everywhere present, do you really think you're going to understand everything about him? 
Do you really think the created thing is going to understand the creator fully? Do you really think that we can catch God in our verbal net and we're not ever going to have any questions? Surely if God is who he says he is, we're not going to understand everything. His ways are going to be above our ways. There are going to be questions that we have that that he could provide us the information and we just wouldn't understand. Like a four-year-old going to a college class at the University of North Alabama, we could present all the information. They just can't take it in. And the gap between us and God and a four-year-old in college is much greater. So I don't know that we're ever going to have all of our questions answered. So let's not use that as a reason to hold the truth at length. Now, how do we cautiously submit? Even when we have questions in our mind, how does that happen? Well, I hope somebody is sitting here saying, he's about to say that what's true has to drive what you do, right? I'm hoping somebody's been here long enough that they're saying, he's going to say that the imperative, the command, cautiously submit, has got to be based on the indicative, what is true. I hope somebody's been here long enough and you're, anti- you're whispering that, you're, watch this, that's what he's going to say. Because that's exactly what I'm going to say. And I'm going to say it like this. That the only way you can submit yourself to God as his servant is if you first see that he gave himself for you as a servant. The only way you're ever going to cautiously submit yourself to God, even in the midst of your questions, is to see that he first submitted as a servant for you. I think of John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Not whoever knows the answers to all the questions, but whoever believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. I think of passages like Philippians 2, another great passage to read during the Christmas season, so practical and so theological. I think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, something that he would cling to. But he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you hear what that's saying? That Jesus, who lived in the perfection of heaven, where he was worshipped and adored, was willing to come here to this earth and be born as a little baby, to be mistreated and misunderstood for you and for me, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died so that we can be a part of the kingdom of God, so that we can be adopted into his family, that he was willing to serve the plan of God in that way. And as we see that and we see his humility and his gentleness and his love for us, then we're able to cautiously submit to him even in the face of the questions that we have. Some of us here are Christians, and you have seen what God has done to move toward you, but we don't do a whole lot to move toward him. 
If God did all this to move toward you, what are you doing to move toward him? Are you spending time in his word? Are you spending time praying? I like what Max said. You can read the Bible and not meet with God. Are you meeting with God? Do you have fellowship with him? Do you have a relationship with him? Some of us need to think about what he's done. We need to ask questions. We need to cautiously submit. But number four, we need to verify in Christian community. Verify in Christian community. I love what Max said, that they've been reading the word together and that God had really blessed that. Because I think we see here in the text that we're to verify in Christian community. You see how she cautiously submitted. Look in verse 36. The angel tells her, your relative Elizabeth, who's so old that nobody thinks she can have a child, who everybody thought was barren because she's never had kids, that she's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. He's saying Elizabeth is six months pregnant. And then she says... I am the Lord's servant, let it be to me as you say. The angel departs, and in verse 39, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judea, and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, why did she do that? Because she's verifying that what the angel said is true. If she gets to the hill country of Judea, and Elizabeth greets her, and she's not six months pregnant then Mary's going to say, whew, I had this crazy dream about this angel Gabriel and listen to this crazy stuff. They said you were going to have a baby and I was going to have a baby. She's verifying what he said. And when she arrives, Elizabeth is indeed six months pregnant. And not only does it confirm what the angel told her, but then Elizabeth confirms even more. She said, the baby within my womb leapt when you came because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And how am, I so, uh, how am I so privileged to have the mother of my Lord come to me? Elizabeth confirms that the baby in Mary is the Lord, the son of the most high God. So Mary found affirmation in Christian community from someone who was older and further down the road because Elizabeth confirmed what the angel had said and she confirmed what the Lord was doing and then Mary praises God and rejoices in what he has done now you need to know that the trip from Nazareth where Mary saw the angel to the hill country of Judea is about 80 or 90 miles depending on how you go and there's no taxi cab, there's no Uber. She would have had to have walked that distance or traveled with people who did, and it would probably would have taken four or five days. And I would imagine during that time she's thinking and she's asking questions. And yes, she's cautiously submitting, number one, because she said she would, and number two, because she's going to see if these things are true. And then number four, she is verifying in Christian community. Think about that. Mary had an angel from the throne room of heaven appear to her and say this was going to happen. And she still has doubts. Many people think that if an angel appeared to you and told you that was the case, you would believe. That's not what happened for Mary. But as she thought, as she asked questions, as she submitted herself, and as she verified in Christian community, then she begins to rejoice. Christian community is powerful. 
You know, it's hard to come to faith or to really grow in your faith without talking to somebody who's a little further down the road than where you are. It's hard to believe or to grow if you just come here and you just listen to the sermons and you read some books. At some point, you need to open up to someone like Mary does with Elizabeth. And you need to think through these things with them. You need to ask questions with them. You need to cautiously submit with them. You need to verify in Christian community because community is powerful. And as we process these things in community, the Lord uses that process to grow our faith in him. Now, if that's true, let me ask you, who's your Elizabeth? Who's a little further down the road than you are that can speak into your life, that you open up to about your questions, that you think and that you process with? Who's that for you? Who's your Mary? Who is it that that can come to you and ask and to process and to do those things that you're speaking into their life so that they can so that you can affirm what the Lord is doing in them? May God make this community that kind of place. If you want to hear more about that, you want to know, you want to be in a relationship like that, Jeremy Terry's sitting right back here. He's got his hand up right there. You go and see him. He's the head of our small group, our discipleship ministry of that team. Talk with him more because we would love for you to be in that kind of relationship. And we want this church to be filled with those kinds of relationships because that's what leads to number five, my soul magnifying the Lord my rejoicing in him. Maybe you're here today and you wish your soul rejoiced in the Lord. Listen, you can have that. Maybe it's something you had in the past and it's it's something you long for again. Maybe you have it and you know it's so good you don't want the fire to go out. You want to continue to kindle those flames. Listen, that happens. By number one, thinking about these things, pondering them. Second, by asking questions. Third, by cautiously submitting. Fourth, by gathering in Christian community. And then number five, praise and love for God will overflow from your life. Let's pray and ask him to do that in this place. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you that we don't have to have all the answers. (laughs) Thank you that you allow us to come to you and to ask questions Thank you for Christian community that will verify those things with us. Thank you for confirming the things that you teach us and that you say in your word with so many other things that are outside your word. We just thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, I pray for those who are here today and are hearing this sermon. I pray that you would make us a people who think and ask questions And that we cautiously submit to you, that we verify what you say is true, and that we join Christian community so that we can be a people who magnify you and rejoice in you. Please come and do this in this place, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.